you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 304 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the trick taking card game episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that a very popular trick taking card game in Sri Lanka coastal Karnataka Tamil Nadu and Maharashtra in the Indian subcontinent it's where that last one is this wonderful trick taking card game pronounced 3 not 4 would be for us 304 and with that wonderful little bit of card game knowledge i of of course, I'm Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Matt, you, you sound very mystical when you speak that language, that lingo, that mystic Agrabah lingo. <laughs> I think one's Middle East and one is Indian subcontinent. Um, but uh, nonetheless, yes, it's very, very fun to say. I mean, come on. Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, Sri Lanka. Everybody knows how to say Sri Lanka, though. And little did we know, with that language, Matthew has summoned some kind of evil demon from the depths of <laughs> not Matt's ass, but uh, the, say, the depths of the earth. I was going to say, Satan would be very upset with this. Uh, you know. <laughs> so how you been, sir? I've been doing well. Uh, recovering from Halloween still. Halloween was a lot of fun on my end. How about how about yours? I worked, and I, yeah, I worked. It rained heavily. It did. It rained I, again for you people. Mm-hmm. But, but actually, it rained in such a way that the kids got to do about an hour, hour and a half of trick-or-treating. So about what they would have normally done anyway before the rain came in. So gotcha. everything was good. Yeah. I, I was treated well. Uh, believe it or not, the first time in nine years of doing this, someone ran out of their garage with an umbrella and held it over the car so when I opened it up, I wouldn't get completely soaked. No kidding. That never happened before. Never, it never has that happened before. And I was like, I couldn't even... And then they like tipped amazingly too. And I was like, holy crap, you guys are just the best people ever. And then uh, they were then superseded, I guess... Friday night or last night, I can't remember, by someone who gave me a case of full-size candy bars because not enough kids came to their door. Hey, do you like candy? Oh, sure. My kid's got enough Halloween candy, but I like candy. I could probably rub it in their face that I got some candy. He's like, cool. Here. Not a whole lot of kids came over. Like, What the fuck? And you got the adult-size candy, too. Yes. Complete. Yes. A case of 30 full-size candy bars. That's American-size candy. Yeah. Those minis, and, that's uh, that's Al-Qaeda. That's Al-Qaeda candy, the, the, the minis. <laughs> and I don't know, uh, the, the Greg Greg Barrett, something like that? This guy who was a, a mediocre stand-up comedian, uh, ended up as a consultant on uh, Sex in the City back in the day and parlayed that into his own talk show, which I enjoyed, the talk show I enjoyed. Uh, he had a joke about that, about fun size candy bars. Is like nobody thinks these are fun size. Nobody thinks these are fun. You know, why don't, if you think they're fun, put them into other avenues of your life. Like, hey, what if we fun sized your paycheck, right? And um, this was his joke. 
And so I, I kind of get where he was going with that. But, uh, you know, fun size isn't fun. Full size is where it's at. But at any rate, yeah, so I definitely found the coolest Halloween house. Unfortunately, I can't give it out over the air or anything. But, you know, still, I know where it is. And that's that's important because my kids will be going there next year. It's located somewhere in between Spring, Texas and Los Angeles, California. We'll, we'll just say this that. This is true. Yeah. This is true, yes. Yeah. I feel, I feel comfortable giving that geographic range. So on the whole, your kids had a, your girls had a pretty fun time. I, their pumpkins looked fantastic, by the way. Yes, I was most impressed with Chloe's, my middle daughter's. Did she do the owl? That was uh, bitchin'. That was no, an awesome owl. She did, she actually did the big, big, super jovial mouth with the teeth. Jovial she, mouth. She, yeah, she did the, she did the only non-owl one. Okay, gotcha. Yes. And I was, I, I don't know, I like that one the best. I mean, the owl ones were cool, don't get me wrong. The one in the middle with, with the with the punch-out owl, that was my youngest. And then the oldest did the one where it was, where you actually scraped, you know, where you, where you do the scraping against the pumpkin so that it glows instead of just shines through. That was my eldest who did that one. Really? All by themselves? Chloe had a little bit of help because she couldn't get the... She couldn't get the decal to stick on the pumpkin right, so Jen had to help her with that to get it going. Um, but yeah, the other two, we were, believe me, we were completely blown away with the with the youngest because she did all that intricate cut work by herself. She wow. was bound and determined. She was like, "I'm doing this." Like, oh. That's great. And they they have all yeah, ten fingers still. They do. They do. They have all ten. Uh, I mean, there's there's got to be ten fingers between the three of them. So I'm I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's actually a law here in L.A. to where you can't have any pumpkins with uh, w- with open mouths. Uh, the mouths at least have to be a certain size, like about six or seven inches uh, long, uh, because we've had some problem with the homeless people using them as, you know, glory hole pumpkin holes. Seriously? Are you serious? Maybe I'm serious. Maybe I'm not serious. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I would believe that of California. <laughs> I would believe that California would literally make that kind of a law. Now, I would expect that kind of behavior in Florida, where all the weird shit gets published. And the thing is, poor Florida. Florida gets such a bad rap because everything that is stupid and wacky is always released and shown to be from Florida. And that's because they have a right-to-know law. And so everything that gets reported to the police in any capacity has to be released to the public within like seven to ten days or something like that. And so that's why all these news agencies are always reporting the crazy and stupid shit that Florida does because they're the only ones who have that law. All the other states, they're just as crazy as Florida is. They just don't have a right to know law. And so it takes a lot longer for that information generally to get released to the public. And by then, most people don't care. They're too busy pointing and laughing at Florida. <laughs> Poor Florida. Yeah. You get stuck Poor with all Florida. the old people and the Cubans and and being laughed at now. That's... Poor Florida. Anyway... That was fun. What do you say we get to a three squared? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie.
this time on Three Squared, we are doing our favorite movies we watched as kids. And we are defining kids as being under the age of 12. So if you are 12, it doesn't count. And believe me, I am about to push that definition to its literal technical edge. I'm just letting you know now. So I'm going to start by admitting that I am totally fucking cheating on this one, because I'm going to give you a whole bunch of honorable mentions. That's right, this has turned into SLS Cast Mojo. And uh, for those of you who don't know the joke, hashtag that's the joke. Uh, Watch Mojo is a big top ten list that always does honorable mentions. They're a big thing on YouTube. And I'm going to give you my honorable mentions now, because I had a very eclectic childhood, and yet somehow... I still watched at least one bad movie and thought it was good. All children, I think, do this. They, we, we, we tend to give them a pass because they're kids and they just don't know any better. But at the same time, there are people who like certain things and they carry that through into adulthood and they may not ever even admit to it as a guilty pleasure, but they are still enamored of their childhood flicks that are so bad that they may not even be good. Well, I am going to relinquish my demons in this regard and share with you one of the worst movies ever to grace the planet. And I liked it. It is one of my honorable mentions, though. But I'm going to do them in chronological order. I have a 1960 Swiss Family Robinson, which, of course, is the, uh, is the Walt Disney version of the, of the picture. And I don't know. I always liked that movie. It really kind of resonated with me, mainly just because I thought the idea of MacGyver, in the 18th century was like amazing, right? This has to be so cool. And as I was growing up, I watched the movie and plus I lived in Disney World or I lived in Disney. I lived in Florida and had ready access to Disney World. So I got to go and live my dream of seeing the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse and virtually anytime I wanted. And to this day, the Swiss Family Treehouse is one of the stops on the Matt Goes to Disney World tour. And it doesn't matter if I'm taking the kids or we go with uh, the, the family or if I was to go by myself. This is happening. And, uh, yeah. So Swiss Family Robinson from 1960 is a great film. Check it out. Um, one of my other honorable mentions, of course, Return of the Jedi from 1983. Everybody kind of leans into... Empire Strikes Back being the greatest of the original trilogy. I'm not here to hash that out with you. I'm going to let you have that if that's what you want. The reason why Return of the Jedi makes this list as an honorable mention for me is because I I truly believe it is the first movie I legitimately saw in the movie theater. I might be wrong about that, but I would literally be so young that I don't remember anymore. And I distinctly remember going to the movie theater to go see this and was so fucking jazzed to finally get in and go and see a Star Wars movie in the theater. So that's what's up there. Now, here comes what I have promised you. From 1985, I have Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. And what is that you say? Well, Tim, Tim, do you still have that little synopsis that you 
that you read because I would like to I would like to let you have your fun with this. Yeah, actually, uh, here let me pull it back up. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful tale, uh, baby. Secret of the it Lost is. Legend. It's now, I'd a- like to point out before before you say anything because I, I I know you're still pulling up, getting it ready. William Cat is the star of this film, along with Sean Young. Poor Sean Young never got any good work after Blade Runner, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, William Cat. The reason why I loved him, I, and I saw, I wanted to see this movie so badly because I loved him, was because he starred in Greatest American Hero, and I adored that TV show. And so when I saw that he was in it, I wanted to see this. And then, of course, when he when Tim explains to you the other side of it, I also had to see it because of this. All right, Tim, give it to him. I like how the technical specs for this movie on IMDb, the runtime is 95 <laughs> minutes, but on TV, it was shortened to 51 minutes. That means yep. a great movie. And the tagline for it, they said it couldn't possibly exist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so do they mean the movie? Yeah, exactly. I know, <laughs> or right? The subject matter. I think the subject uh, matter, but it—I I mean, apparently the movie. So, Baby's Secret of the Lost Legend: A paleontologist and her husband discover a mother and baby brontosaurus in Africa, and try to protect them from a group of hunters intent on capturing the dinosaurs. Sometimes, and only sometimes. All I wanted to do was find my very own dinosaur. A unique event happens. Looks like a brontosaurus. When history catches up with us. A desperate last attempt by mankind to save the last of the dinosaurs. Sean Young. Not everybody gets to experience this. William Cat. Baby, the secret of the lost legend. Were dinosaurs predominantly like the... The, uh, the 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 skeletons, the bones, I guess, discovered more so here in the U.S. than in Africa. I don't know why I'm asking you. Generally, yeah, I mean, there, there's a, I mean, there are other sites. Russia's a really big area for it. I'm sure there are sites in Africa as well, but I do know that a great deal of it comes from here in the United States, up in Montana. Uh, I believe there's areas here in Texas as well, and then China also has some China cool stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, there you go. There's a dinosaur is found, a brontosaurus is found in Africa, and these two people are trying to protect the baby brontosaurus from this evil paleontologist or doctor or something like that. That's right. And it is truly, truly a terrible movie. But I I did not know any better. I mean, I clearly I had at least some inkling of something because I loved Return of the Jedi. But at any rate, you know, there's just no accounting for taste. Now, moving forward in time, I actually also went to the movie theater and saw this. And my my dad, God wait, bless wait, you him. went to the movie theater to go see Baby Secret oh, of the Lost? Oh, I sure Lost- did. You did. I sure did. You're goddamn skippy. I did. Who oh, yeah. who did you force to go with you? The first or the second time? You saw it twice. Yes, I did. <laughs> Who'd you? Okay, who died in the theater? Therefore, couldn't go with you to see it the second time. <laughs> All right, so I I, I uh, dragged my mom to it the first time, and the second time, uh, because it was a family movie, I convinced my church daycare people to that we were going to get to go to the movies 
And I, I was like, hey, we should go see Baby because it's a great movie. Uh, you know, what? I'm seven, eight years old. I'm mean, like eight years old now, right? And, um, and I'm like, yeah, it's a great movie and it's family friendly and it'd be perfect for all of us to be able to go. So, uh, so they looked it up, made sure the rating was good and they took the, the, the church daycare people took, I don't know, about 15, 20 kids and we all went to go see it. So yeah, I got, I, I hustled, I hustled hard, baby. It was awesome. God, that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and so moving forward though, getting back into good movies again, uh, I went to, I went to go see this movie in the theater also. And my dad, um, would not stop singing this goddamn song for like a month after I saw this movie, after we saw this movie, An American Tale. That's right, folks. Just imagine a tone deaf, 30 something trying to sing somewhere out there. That's right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Wasn't that like Luther Vandross that actually sang that? Like the legit version, not the, you know, not somewhere the in movie version. Out yeah. there. <laughs> something, something, something. Slit in my Beneath wrist. So depressing. Moonlight. Something like that, anyway. Yeah. And yeah, that honestly makes me. It, makes me remember this movie more fondly than the movie itself. I the only thing I remember really enjoying from this film was the musical number There Are No Cats in America. That that's right folks. Uh, it, it, it and and if you look back on the film itself, it really does create an excellent allegory for the way people saw Immigrants saw America before they hit the land, the mainland, and were like, wow, did we get this shit wrong? And so there's some really interesting stuff going on there. And it was also the first time that I ever knew that the Statue of Liberty had not always been green. It was copper at one point. That's right. Yes, it really is copper. And here's a fun thing. I want to say back in like 1975, 76-ish, uh, Carter, Carter-ish years, late Ford, early Carter. They actually went through and spent the money to clean it up and it shone copper again for like six months. <laughs> and then they just decided, fuck it, we're leaving it alone. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, then we have, of course, from 1987, The Princess Bride. And finally, from February of 1989, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. All of these movies are honorable mentions. But Matt, you say, Matt, that's an amazing list, including Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, because I, too, loved that film, said no one ever. But what are my actual picks? My actual picks in chronological order. 1984, Ghostbusters. Absolutely enjoyed this film. I thought it was just mind-blowing. Everything was great. I wanted to be... Um, it was weird growing up with this movie. I wanted to be both Peter Venkman and Ray Parker Jr. Because I wanted to be a badass Ghostbuster, but I also wanted to be a famous singer who got to sing about the Ghostbusters. Really weird. <laughs> so you, you wanted to sing about yourself? Somebody was a little vain child. 
Doesn't everybody? I mean, hey. <laughs> and then moving forward to the next year. I, I do sing about myself. Somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Dad. Uh, but for 1985, I have Back to the Future. That movie completely changed everything. Obviously, it's hung around for 33 years at this point. So clearly... Being able to see that in the theater and grow up with it was absolutely amazing. And finally, finally, literally four days before my birthday, my 12th birthday, 1989's Batman. That movie completely, as far as I'm concerned, completely changed everything for comic book movies and the potential for comic book movies. Because even though we ultimately got fed into the Joel Schumacher schlop that kind of killed things and cooled it off for a while until we got 2000's X-Men. We never would have gone down the rabbit hole without 89 Batman. Because you have to remember that by this point, Superman was already a non-starter. The, the commodity was over with. And so to be able to do it with another franchise showed that potential was there to look into other avenues and other superheroes so there you go so ghostbusters back to the future and batman 1984 1985 and 1989 respectively my favorite movies that i watched as a kid being under the age of 12 what do you got there tim well i'm not cool like matt and have all these honorable mentions maybe i should say striptease should be on my honorable mentions list not but that does go to show uh, how much of a youngin I, I was. I was definitely a 90s kid. So my view on Joel Schumacher Batman movies, as you will soon find out, at least Batman Forever, uh, I, I, I look at them with more positive thoughts. But my three favorite flicks before the age of 10-12 are all from around the same year. One's from 95, the other two are from 1996. I'll get it out there. I had, I had some cool parents. Uh, my dad, especially, I've talked about it on the show multiple times. My parents would go and rent a R-rated movie on a Friday night. And then if the movie was good enough, and he knew, my dad knew, that I was wanting to see this particular movie, he'd just run up and wake me up at like 6 o'clock in the morning while my mom was still passed out asleep. And I get to go downstairs and watch said movie. So the two movies from 1996 are stark contrasts when it comes to the mature content in those films. But first off, I'm going to talk about 1995's Batman Forever, directed by Joel Schumacher. Of course, Joel Schumacher had a lot to live up to after Batman and Batman Returns. Batman Returns was one of my all-time favorite, actually it is still my all-time favorite uh, Batman movie. I recently watched it maybe about a year ago, last November, Batman Returns, and I completely forgot how adult that movie was. It definitely deserved that PG-13 rating. If it just went a little bit more over the edge, it easily could have been an R-rated flick. Maybe if they said fuck a couple more times, they easily it easily could have been an R-rated film. But Batman Forever, I remember going to Six Flags Astroworld and... I, that was like the birthday gift from my mother was to go there for the very first time. And every single ride 
that we had to wait 45 minutes to get on, there were these TVs. The big movie that was opening up, my birthday's in May, so the big movie that was opening a month later was Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever. It came out on June 9th, 1995. So the entire time at Six Flags Astroworld, I kept seeing the trailer for Batman Forever, and I could, I mean, I watched it every single time it came on, and so I probably watched it 5,000 times at that damn park, so we were there from when it opened till it closed. I just could not wait to go see it. The movie came out, and my parents wouldn't let me go see it. They didn't take me for, I, I don't actually know the reasoning behind it even now. But sure as shit, when the movie was released on VHS, that Friday, my mom took me to the local Walmart or Target, and there we went and purchased that film. And I watched it pretty much back-to-back with Batman Returns. Because even as I was getting over, older, I was moving away from the 1989's Batman And I was more solidified in the visual style of Batman Returns. I mean, ever since I was a super young kid, I mean, whenever I was, I think I was like five, watching Batman Returns and loving the visual style of it and wanting to see another Batman movie that took that visualization further, more into the comic book realm. And sure as shit, Joel Schumacher did that with Batman Forever. And to this day, I watched this recently again. After I saw uh, rewatched Batman Returns last November, I watched Batman Forever, and I still enjoyed it. It's camp, yes. Can you take the movie seriously? No, you cannot. But is Tommy Lee Jones having fun on screen? Because we all know he didn't have fun behind the scenes. Yes, he was having fun on screen. Was Jim Carrey? Yes. Was there a little meat behind the movie? Yes. Did Seal have a bitchin' song, Kiss of a Rose? Fuck yeah, he did. And that is why, when I was a young, impressionable child, at the ripe young age of seven... (laughs) I fell in love with Batman Forever, and it still holds a dear, sweet place in my heart now. Now, next up is a kid-friendly film from 1996, Muppet Treasure Island. Yes, starring the great Tim Curry. We all know the story of, of, of Treasure Island. We all know who the Muppets are. Well, you mash them together, and what do you get? But Muppet Treasure Island. Um, you have... Tim Curry as Long John Silver. Uh, Billy Connolly plays Billy Bones there at the beginning of the film. And then, of course, you have the Muppets who round out all those other other characters. Muppet Treasure Island is such a fun movie. As a kid, I wanted to go see this at the theater. And in fact, Matthew, just like you, I was in a daycare. And our, we were supposed to go see Muppet Treasure Island. One sunny February afternoon, and we go to the theater there in Tomball, the the Tomball Cinema 6, I believe it's still there, but remodeled, and we're sitting there watching the movie, then all of a sudden the wrong movie comes up. They got the film switched up, and they put on Broken Arrow instead. So instead of us young seven-year-olds, six, seven-year-olds going into, go, you know, we're there to go see Muppet Treasure Island. We're watching Christian Slater and John Travolta beating the shit at each other and cursing at each other in, in Broken Arrow. But later on, when the movie was released on VHS, I got the tape, watched it religiously because it is such a good film. Guys, if you've never seen this movie, and I 
be hard-pressed to find a diehard Muppet fan who hasn't seen this film. You gotta check it out. It's up there. It's on par with A Muppet Christmas Carol. These are two great films that, I mean, shit, this one came out just a couple years after Muppet Christmas Carol. It's just so damn good. And if you love Tim Curry, it's one of Tim Curry's best performances as well. So do check out Muppet Treasure Island. And yet, the more mature the more mature flick that came out just a few months later in June of 1996. I was a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan growing up. I love True Lies. I love Total Recall. I love both Terminator movies. I loved me some Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when Eraser came out, damn it, I couldn't help myself but look forward to seeing it. And... This was one of those movies where my parents rented it while my mom was asleep the next morning. My dad woke me up to watch before they had to return the VHS to the rental store. <laughs> and I I just couldn't believe it. it. It was both campy, fun Arnold Schwarzenegger action that had some real stakes to it. And you really don't get that now, even with your Fast and the Furious movies. Yes, do people get caught up in the whole Paul Walker thing, the whole Vin Diesel, you know, family agenda in all those movies? Yes, they do. But are there real tense moments? Are there real villains that you really want the bad guy to destroy? No, there isn't. Are there those things in Eraser? Yes, there is. Well, not the family thing. But you do get a Vanessa Williams and a great James Caan, who turns out to be the bad guy at the end, that makes this movie so juicy. There you have it. My three flicks. Again, Batman Forever from 95, and Muppet Treasure Island and Eraser from 1996. Matt, have you ever seen Eraser? Were you ever a fan of that movie? Are you kidding the most amazing CGI alligators ever in the history of CGI? Of course, the guy who played Sheldon, I think his name was, on uh, on Murphy Brown, the painter. Was his name Sheldon? Yeah. I think that was his name, was Sheldon, the painter guy. He's in the movie, and he gets he's the mobster who goes up, ends up as the bartender in the gay bar. And it's perfect, because no one will ever think to, for, to look for him there. Yeah, um, Robert I mean, Pastorelli. Yeah, he, he, he's no longer with us. But, yeah, I mean, so th- there's, a, there's all sorts of things. You've just been erased. I mean, come on. Who doesn't see Eraser in 1996? My 19-year-old ass was in was in a seat, that's for sure. And my 8-year-old ass was at home on the couch watching it at <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> but in the, when, the, when DVDs be, you know, became a thing, just uh, a couple years later, we got it on DVD, and I would watch it all the time. But man, I think I watched it twice in a row when we rented it. It's just a fun movie and unfortunately this was nearing the end of the arnold this was probably the last really fantastic arnold schwarzenegger movie i'm kind of drawing a blank on what could have come uh, uh, the sixth i think it's this is it the sixth day or the twelfth day about yeah the sixth day there was there was sixth day after that and then i want to say this is when he kind of went into his like darker period like end of days i think was around then too in 97 or 98 or something oh yeah collateral damage which bombed 
Oh, yeah, they needed Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, No 3. Oh, Jingle All the Way was also the same year as Eraser. Oh, and by the way, I watched uh, Jingle All the Way last December with the more significant other, and that movie is so fucking awful. And I loved <laughs> it as a kid. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, oh, and let's not forget, yeah, the, so the Batman and Robin, that came out in 97, he did that. And so, yeah, and then, then there was End of Day, Sixth Day, Collateral Damage. All that stuff. That was I would say that that was definitely the end of the shall we say the Schwarzenegger sans, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that was the last time you can go in an all Schwarzenegger movie and get exactly what you expected to receive. Indeed. So I guess that brings us to the end of a three squared, right? It does. Were you not happy with that three squared? I was very happy with that three squared. Um, But next week, we're finally going to come back and do some real official news. That's going to be our bonus segment. Real official news. (laughs) And without further ado, I guess it's now time to do some movies. Is it not, sir? That it is. Real official movies. Yes, yes, I'm going to shut up so I don't talk over Tim. Yes, real official movies. <laughs> All right, folks, here we go. It's the movie we We've got Bohemian Rhapsody, 2018 version of Suspiria, and The Old Man and the Gun. Where do you want to start first, sir? How about Bohemian Rhapsody? Let's do it, folks. Not everyone is a star, Freddy. What are you afraid of? You can't get anywhere pretending to be someone you're not. You regret it. No one will play queen. I didn't know his fancy dress for it. You look like an angry lizard. You've got to make an impression, darling. So, tell me, what makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet? I'll tell you what it is, Mr. Reed. Yeah! We're four misfits who don't belong together. They're playing for other misfits. You're the outcasts right at the back of the room. Pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. So now the family name's not good enough for you. Changed it legally. No looking back. We want to do something different. It's my money. I say, what goes? We can't simply repeat ourselves. No. We can do better. Freddie, could you tell us about the rumors concerning your sexuality? How long can that last? You don't make decisions for the band. Your life is going to be very difficult. We believe in each other. That's everything. We're going to do great things. It's an experience. Love. Tragedy. Joy. Something that people will feel belongs to them. We got a 2018 biographical drama film about the British rock band Queen focusing on Freddie Mercury. 
uh, basically culminating in the Live Aid performance back in 1985. And, of course, the song of the same name is where the movie gets its title. Uh movie's directed by Brian Singer, and it's got a screenplay by Anthony McCartan from a story by Anthony McCartan and Peter Morgan. The movie stars Rami Malek, Lucy Boynton, uh, Gwendolyn Lee, Ben Hardy, Joseph Mazzello, Aidan Gillen, Tom Hollander, and Mike Myers. And... All right, so basically this film starts off in 1970, and we get uh, Farouk Bulsara, or Farrakh, I can't remember, how does he say his name, Farrakh? Farrakh? Yes. (laughs) Some combination of that. Um, Basically, he's working out at Heathrow Airport, lands a gig, Uh, actually he doesn't even land a gig, he goes to a nightclub to watch a band, he meets Brian May afterwards, and then... um, asks to join the band when they when he realizes he that there's a possibility for him to get in as a singer uh they reform the band quickly after they get john deacon on board and then you know they're they're just kind of moving forward and going through until they land their first contract um with emi records and then of course as they lean into as they lean into Freddie's life, they kind of go more into his initially getting together with Mary Austin. Um, you know, the band then moves forward. They make their own albums. They kind of, they, they do pretty well. And then by the time they get around to their fourth album, they leave because no one wants to do Bohemian Rhapsody and naturally they end up being right it's a smash hit it's got mixed reviews and then once they start going on tour well now freddie's kind of turned around a bit and and leaning into his lifestyle and and exploring his sexuality and everything and so the movie kind of goes through the band's ups and downs and the troubles and the splits and the come back togethers and everything again as i said culminating in 1985 now uh, and and I don't want to do anything more than that because you can, I mean, for crying out loud, you could just go watch Behind the Music. And that's the problem with this movie. You could literally just go watch VH1's Behind the Music and get just as much out of that as you would this movie. The movie is well acted and the movie is absolutely well shot. It is a gorgeous looking film. But... S- I think I think when people think of the term selling out they think that the they think you know oh you're you're no longer doing it for you you're just doing it for the money it's about the look and the feel and giving into the corporate need and the corporate greed and queen was never about that but I think that it is that queen today has become about protecting the brand. And instead of taking the opportunity with this movie to explore truly and deeply, I almost said truly, madly, deeply. That's right. I almost went there. Savage Garden, I almost came to your rescue. Um, but going truly and deeply into what made them push the boundaries, what made them made them who they were and allowed them to create 
the brand that became queen that we know and love. It, it's not been done. I mean, they kind of touch on things. They just hit the highlights, but they don't ever really get to the meat. And I, and I don't know. I, I want to say it's really probably more Brian May and the rest of Queen kind of just stepping in and saying, look, this is all we're going to let you tell. Um, I don't think Brian Singer could have done anything differently because I think it literally just comes down to the content. It's because what you see is well done. It's just there's no meat to explore what it is that you're seeing. And so the visuals of the concerts, the visuals of the looks, the visuals of their presentation, uh, the presentation style of the heyday is is very well done and that's just as much on the cinematography and the costume design and the set design as it is for brian singer but he's still the one behind the camera saying hey we got to put this in frame and get this going so i give him props there i just think that the story doesn't ever really come together in such a way that it's truly compelling i think they played it safe and i think casual fans will love this movie i know one of my close friends actually uh uh, Mike of Cries of Solace, he loved this movie and he's like, oh man, I'm so glad I saw it in IMAX. And I think in terms of just celebrating their music, it works, but in celebrating them, it misses. So I give this one a 3.5. It's a, it is a decent movie, but it is not the powerhouse end all be all that one, quite frankly, should expect from such an end-all, be-all of rock. Did you see it in IMAX? And what did you think of Remy Malik's performance? I did see it in IMAX as well. And uh, and again, yay A-list, because it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> Isn't that uh, great? I know I wouldn't have done it otherwise, so I cannot complain. Um you know, honestly, I think uh, Rami Malek, uh, I was a little concerned that they were leaning a little too heavily into making him look like Freddie Mercury. Um, so I was, maybe that kind of helped subvert my expectations because I thought they were just going to like make him over the top and just because, or, or make it one of those things where it was like Ashton Kutcher as Steve Jobs because that he looked like a young Steve Jobs. And then the performance comes in and you're just like, what the fuck happened? Fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah. And I, and so I really thought that they were going to do that here. And I think it lowered my expectations enough that I wasn't like blown away, but I was impressed. I mean, I think he absolutely did a bang on job of, I mean, of what they let him perform, of what they let him do. I think, I think he did a very respectable, respectable, good Lord, respectable job of, portraying freddie mercury and uh i'm i mean i'm not sorry he got cast so good on him for that yeah i heard a lot i mean i've been hearing a lot of or reading a lot of horrible reviews of this movie people are complaining about the inaccuracies and i can definitely see where they're coming from i at least enjoyed the movie i don't know if it was because i went into it with very low expectations um, before reviews came out and when the 
the teaser and then the very first trailer was released, I couldn't wait to see this movie. I thought it was going to be a fantastic cinema experience, especially in IMAX or Dolby. And I went to go see it in IMAX and the sound was fantastic. It was wonderful, captivating at times even. But really, the first half of the movie kind of felt like an abbreviated Wikipedia article that contained so many faults. It's a little, I mean, it's it's a head-scratcher, really, because you have Brian May and Roger Taylor, who executive produced this film. They had a say what was going to be in this movie, what was not going to be in this movie, and yet you have all of these rock and roll historians who are saying, like, at, during live the Live Aid performance, Freddie Mercury had no idea he had AIDS, and yet that's a big thing in this movie, and that's one of the most compelling things about this movie or moments in this movie is when he's performing at Live Aid and he comes out saying to his buddies beforehand that I have AIDS. It's little things like that that you kind of wonder, well, why the hell didn't they just tell the actual story? I could be wrong. Maybe these rock and roll historians or whatever are are wrong, but uh, that was just one of the things that a lot of them are or have been writing about. But the movie does have so many faults, not just historically, but uh, technically and within the story as well, like how they decided to tell the story. For example, how did Freddie Mercury find his voice? When did Freddie Mercury find his voice? That's what I've liked to have known. Like, was he singing one day when he was working at Heathrow Airport, unloading baggage? Was he just singing at home? You just really never got the sense that he found his own and he found that that security within his talent. Because he just automatically goes and becomes this over-the-top, slightly prickish guy. You know, but he's still a good guy. He's still a nice guy, but he's slightly, slightly prickish. And therefore, when he becomes full-on gay, when he definitely comes out of the closet and, and starts living in, throwing these lavish parties, surrounding himself with these, like, lavish people and over-the-top people, he becomes more of a caricature than he does an honest-to-goodness character. Now, did he dress like that? I'm sure he did. But was that honestly him? And I wanted to see that movie. I thought it pretty interesting that some years ago when they were they announced, you know, the making of this film, that Brian May and Roger Taylor wanted to make the movie that Sasha Baron Cohen, he was their first choice to play Freddie Mercury. But Sasha Baron Cohen ended up leaving the movie because he wanted the film to go more into Freddie Mercury's homosexuality. And going into the movie, I didn't think they were really going to explore that all too much. And the movie does. It really does. But it does so, again, in a, in a more so caricaturistic way. And the only drama and honest-to-goodness seriousness is the AIDS factor. Once they start introducing that into the story, because of what was going on in the news at the time and with, uh, within the gay community at the time, you automatically know exactly where this film is going to start tugging at your heartstrings, because it's so obvious. It's a good movie, I give it a three. I enjoyed it. But if I was watching it at home, I don't think I would have had near the experience that I had seeing it at an IMAX theater. 
So I'm just going to stick with a three out of five. It could have been so much better. And I think Queen and Freddie Mercury definitely deserved a better flick. It was just cheesy. You know, like whenever they did the We Will Rocky thing, how fucking cheesy that was. It was just annoying. It was so, so, so annoying. But they, and that's the thing. And see, that's what made it hard for me to give it a 3.5 because it's packaged so that people, so that mass market appeal will overcome any other sustainable objection that a critic or a reviewer might have, someone who is expecting more from the film. And I think a movie, like you said, you know, a movie of this caliber, it deserves more and you know so i struggled with the 3.5 i can live with that but i'm definitely not sad that you gave it a three because i almost did (laughs) (laughs) and there you have it all right well then let's uh move to our next film sir where would you like to go from here scary or goodbye How about Goodbye? The Goodbye movie? All right. The Goodbye. The Goodbye movie. Here we go, folks. Old Man and the Gun. Hey, excuse me. Need some help? No, I'm good. Let me take a look. You know anything about cars? Uh, no, not really. So, uh, what did you say you do? Well, that's a secret. And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank, and instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window, and you just walk in, real calm. So you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, okay? You're not serious. Uh, Excuse me, I'd like to open up an account. Well, great. What type of account do you have in mind? This kind. This kind. You said he was armed. He had a gun. You saw it. Well, he was also sort of a gentleman. He was very polite. He seemed like a nice enough fella. Look at that. Is he smiling? States. 93 robberies in two years. You think you can catch him? Yeah, I won't lie. I'd love to slap the cuffs on him myself. Let's hope I get the chance. Try another city, baby. Another town. He spent his whole life locked up, except for the times that he broke out. Somebody should have told him to quit while he was in. Well, you find something you love. I'm following down. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. You're never exactly where you're supposed to be, are you? Now, whenever I close the door, I think, is this the last time I'll ever have a chance to do whatever that thing was? You know what I do when the door closes? I jump out the window. (laughs) Wherever. I sat down with him once, and I said, surely there's an easier way to make a living. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living. American crime comedy film written and directed by David Lowry, which is based on the true life story of Forrest Tucker, uh, a career criminal and prison escape artist. Uh, let's see here. Film, of course, stars Robert Redford, Casey Affleck, Danny Glover, Glover, sorry, not Glover, good God. 
I just cannot talk tonight, guys. I'm so sorry. Danny Glover, Tika Sumter, Tom Waits, and Sissy Spacek. Uh, yeah, so at the age of 70, basically, Forrest Tucker escapes from San Quentin and then basically just goes on a string of heists. And people are absolutely confused, but the public seems to love the guy. And they, of course, wrap up a little romantic interest into it and a little bit of enamored chase. And let's see what you come up with. You know what? Um, this movie is, it's a sweet movie, guys. Uh, you know, I think one of, I, I was looking at some reviews and stuff on it and one of the, one of the reviewers, I can't remember who, it might even be one of the consensus terms from like, uh, from, from like, uh, Rotten Tomatoes or something. But basically this was, a, it's a very nice movie for Robert Redford to go out on. I think he gives just an, he gives a great performance, but, and, and, and this was not in any way, shape or form phoned in, but I think that there was just kind of a relaxed nature to it. And some, I think might misinterpret that as the superb acting of Robert Redford. No, I think that this was just a guy who was comfortable enough in his bones and in his skin as an actor to just kind of take his real life view of being okay with walking away from the front of the camera because he's retiring as an actor. He's not retiring and going away from film. He still has other projects and things that he wants to be involved in to produce. He still wants to be behind the camera whenever possible. So it's not like he's going away, just he's not going to be acting anymore. And, and I think he showcases that in his self as he reflects it in kind of the jovial side to the character that he has. And much the way that you kind of look at Forrest kind of, you know, going on one last crime spree, if you will, this is Robert Redford doing his swan song. And he knows it, and he's okay with it. And so I think that there's a bit of a blend of that real life of Redford um, in his acting for this character this time. I, And it's not, again, it's not phoned in. It's very relaxed. It's very natural. And it's good acting. And it's just a sweet, charming story. But it's not a compelling story exactly either. So... At the end of the day, I also give this one a 3.5 out of 5. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this movie. I think it's a good movie. I don't think, I was honestly thinking that he might get a, an Academy Award nomination out of this. I don't think he will now. I will be pretty surprised if he does, but yeah. Oh, 3.5 out of 5. It's a fun movie, and I definitely think you would not be sorry if you watched it. Yeah, it's definitely a good movie for him to go out on, I thought. It's gentle, sweet, and charming, very much like Robert Redford's performance. Does it work as a heist film? It sure does. Does it work as a drama? It sure does. Does it work as a, as a love story? I don't know. <laughs> Because I really never got the sense that he cared for Sissy Spacek enough 
to where he could possibly give up his life of crime, you know? Like, it always felt like he could he could just jump right back into it. And I don't know if that's how it really happened with the guy or not, but this is indeed a movie biopic where they take liberties that I think are justified and that work with the story. Because they might have interpreted the events or the moments or the actions in a different way, but cinematically, it works. And overall, I think the general idea of getting across who this guy was, it, it was a success. You know, they, they did a good job. Is he going to be nominated for the Academy Award? Quite possibly. Should he? I don't see why not. I mean, not a lot of performances have really jumped out as of yet. But he's a I, I always liked Robert Redford, and I always wished he could have been in more flicks. And I'm happy to know that he's wanting to direct more and write more, write more, or, or do something else still with film. But, I mean, it, it's like Clint Eastwood can't doesn't hold a candle to him, you know? Clint Eastwood is good in specific movies, playing specific roles, and I'm looking forward to seeing him in The Mule. But... Robert Redford, I think, could be put in almost any movie, and he'll be charming as ever. You'll just enjoy... You can enjoy his performance. It's like Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell can be in a shitty-ass movie, but I guarantee you, his performance will be worth it. <laughs> you know, or, or, or his performance would be the thing that carries the movie. So I'm going to give this a... Four out of five. I thoroughly enjoyed the movie for what it was. Could have been better, of course. But I like the slow, the, 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 the gentle, sweet, charming, methodical nature of the overall flick. Okay, well, then that is going to leave us with Suspiria. 2018 version. At the beginning, she gave me things. Perfect balance, perfect sleep. Oh, she wants to get inside of me. I can feel her. Oh, she can see me. When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. The dumplings incredible. One, two. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide, what is it you want to be for this company? There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. You are living with dangerous people. Three mothers, three God, three devil. Mother Tenebrarum, Mother Lacrimarum. Mother Suspiriorum. Darkness. Tears. <laughs> and sighs. You're making some kind of deal with them. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. It's all a mess. The one out there. The one in here. The one that's coming. 
2018 supernatural horror film directed by uh, Luca Guadagnino. I'm so sorry. I totally fucked that up. Uh, (laughs) Written by David uh, Kagajnich. And I apologize for butchering that one as well. Uh, Let's see here. It's based on Suspiria by Dario Argento and Daria uh, Nicolodi. It stars Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, Mia Goth, Angela Winkler, Ingrid Caven, Elena uh, Folkina, Sylvie Testud, Renee Sochnindic, (laughs) <laughs> Again, I apologize for butchering any of these names. Christine Laboot, Fabrizia, Sachi, Mag- uh, Malgozia, Bella, Jessica Harper, and Chloe Grace Moritz. Um, this film takes place during the German autumn of 1977, which is actually, I think, something that's underplayed a little bit. I think it's referenced well in the film in terms of giving you an idea of when it is. But I don't think people understood the amount of turmoil that was going on. I mean, you had people being kidnapped and killed. Uh, there, there were planes being hijacked. This was like a really big fear for a lot of people in this day and age. We're getting into the, even the, like on the American side of things, you know, we're getting into like the Iran hostage crisis and stuff like that so this is like german germany's version of all this kind of stuff and so it's a it's already a very virulent time and it's it's that kind of society that is being underpinned by this coven if you will that operates basically in plain sight and we have young Susie Banyan, well, I guess not young, but Miss Susie Banyan, who's coming to the Marcos Dance Academy in West Berlin. And uh, the uh, Patricia, this girl Patricia, has already just disappeared, and everybody's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And she actually told her uh, psychotherapist that there's a coven of witches in there, and of course he doesn't believe her, but now he's like, well, maybe there was something to it because she disappeared. Um, you know, and then, and from there, it just kind of takes a left turn and <laughs> it takes a left turn into art house and a right turn, uh, into horror and then kind of makes this, uh, roundabout that kind of passes both art house and horror for the rest of the movie. The, this film is... It's not bad, okay? It's not a bad movie. It, it What it is also not, it is also not for everyone. <laughs> um, and it's hard for me to rate the movie because part of the horror, I think, comes from the fact that because... It's almost like if it it's almost like this is a bastardized and I now don't forget this is of course based on it's it's a remake of the 77 version of Suspiria but it's almost as if Black Swan and not Young Frankenstein but something equally outlandish had some kind of bastardized child. That is what this movie is because it uses the art of dance to generate the art 
that is the movie. But the underpinnings all revolve around this coven that is doing horrific things because they are witches. And witches, by the tradition, especially of the 70s in Europe, behave this way. Ooh, the witch. That's a good one. So imagine if Black Swan and the witch had some kind of bastardized child. That's what this movie would be. So it's got a lot of art house elements to it, but it's got a lot of great horror elements to it. And then, of course, it's just got conventional filmmaking going on as well. And so at sometimes it, at some, at sometimes during the film, it is hard to follow. Sometimes it's kind of outlandish for the sake of being outlandish. And then sometimes it's making decent strides at being scary. And I think that most people are going to look at this and what they're not going to understand of it is what's going to make them not like it as a whole. But maybe instead of, look, of looking at it that way and, and treating it in that fashion, let those things that you don't understand feed into the stuff that would scare you anyway. Because a lot of times what we don't understand tends to scare us. And I think that you can get a lot further and get a lot more mileage out of this movie if you view it in that light. That being said, I think that the movie on the whole uh, suffers from a bit of try-hard. Especially as it comes into the final, say, 20 minutes, it is definitely, it is definitely trying to just bring everything together into this crescendo of evil that has elements of a twist to it that are both given to you like in Fight Club, but also not given to you like in Usual Suspects. And I think that they use the art house elements and the dance and, and the and the performance to kind of feed into that so that when you get the horror, it's just kind of always in your face with the horror. I don't necessarily think that it was too long, despite that, but I I just think that there are a lot of elements in it, and especially as it comes to its um, climax, I think that it really does suffer from a bit of try-hard. So this one also, it's a clean sweep, folks, 3.5 out of 5. I think there's a lot to like about this movie, but I can see why people absolutely hate it. And honestly, it was hard for me to really, really get behind this movie. But I think it's worth watching, and I definitely think that um, it is well-acted and well-shot. And I think decently directed for what they were trying to do. 3.5 out of 5, bring us home, Tim. It's a difficult movie to love. <laughs> I really, really, really wanted to love this movie. I've been looking forward to it since I first heard of him making this film. I'm calling him him because I'm not going to attempt to say his name. I, I was blown away by Call Me By Your Name, which he directed last year. And right after I saw the movie, I looked more into his work. And I already knew they were making a Suspiria movie. And once I found out he was a part of it, I, I just couldn't wait. Probably one of the most anticipated movies of this year in my book was Suspiria. So, of course, I went and saw the movie. The theater I went to go see it in. There was a fucking bright-ass exit light 
right on the wall, like in my peripheral, that was just every time there was a dark scene, and there are quite a few dark scenes in this movie, not necessarily pitch black or anything, or I should say low light scenes, you just constantly have this bright ass exit sign right there. And even with that bright ass exit sign, and then a very low sound, I was captivated by this film. Now, does everything make sense? Not at all. In fact, I don't know if it was just a first viewing thing, but I didn't really understand the whole Mennonite thing. Maybe I get it. Like, yeah, so evil can easily possess somebody who is running away from a, a devout religion. They go from being absolutely pure to questioning that purity, and therefore that creates something that evil can get into. I think that's what they were going for, but they kind of beat that in the head, you know. And then you have all these other things, uh, historical things that are going on in the background that are very interesting, and they make for an excellent tone in atmosphere, but it's difficult to understand why they chose to have all this stuff going on in the background. It never really has a payoff. Now, again, it's probably one of those first-time viewing things where the movie has layers, so the second viewing, some of those layers can possibly be peeled back and reveal themselves, or it was just a misfire. It's difficult to tell, but the movie, for being two and a half hours long, like Call Me By Your Name, is wonderful to look at. It's a wonderful experience. And I thought the use of nudity and the use of the gore was done in a very artistic way. And not ever did I feel it was way too over the top and gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous. Whereas to me, it felt like more of an art form, more so for the nudity. But the gore, on the other hand, is definitely like a, a stark contrast to all of that. And also, because of it being a stark contrast, didn't feel like it fit 100% with everything else going on with the film. Again, it could have been the, the experience I had watching this movie. I'm looking forward to seeing it again at a different theater. But as of now, I'm giving it a 4 out of 5. I still thoroughly enjoyed it. This is how you remake a movie. By taking the already produced material and making something truly unique and different. That is what they did with 2018 Suspiria. Therefore, I think it's well worth the praise that it has been receiving. But all the negative criticisms is also well-deserved to an extent. I just think a lot of people don't like to feel like they're idiots, and they don't like it when a movie is too smart for them. <laughs> And I have a feeling this could be one of those movies. I'm just not 100% sure. So four out of five, Suspiria for me. All right, all right. That brings us to the end of the movies. And next week's flicks are going to be mid-90s and beautiful boy. So without further ado, I believe it is now time for the spiel. Is it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? 
Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solas. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solas. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down to on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. And if you'd like to support the show, you can please. On, head on over to patreon.com and check us out over there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Dakota Johnson, I get to say this. Seeing a catering truck feels like home. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.